This recap of the Star Trek Discovery Short Treks 3 and 4 sponsored by our friends over at True Car. Every car comes with its share of stories that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date, that luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer long. Well, you can't put a price on your stories, but now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell it or trade it in. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions. Navigation and Moonroof watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already knew it was gonna cost you, but now you can know how much it's gonna ding your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer not available in all areas. Star Trek Discovery Short Treks, Episodes 3 and 4 are both over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and with me as always is the man who never gets my threat ganglia up, Mr. Rob Sestrinino. Hello, Rob. Jess, I try to avoid it at all costs, uh, if possible. Well, it's it, apparently you're a friendly species. You drop equipment on my doorstep and... <laughs> Here we are. You're not turning it into a beacon, are you? Um, well, maybe I am and maybe I'm not. Mm -hmm. We'll have to find out. Um, yes. But seriously, Rob, short trek number three. Uh, I heard from a lot of people that this was one of their favorites, that uh, this got a very positive reception. And we get to find out the backstory of maybe the most interesting character on the Discovery we get to find out a little bit more about the world of the Kelpians. And I think there's a lot to unpack here as far as how Kelpian society works. And then also a, a lot of questions this raises, a lot of interesting ethical quandaries. And there's also a couple of rabbit holes we could go down where we argue about the prime directive for an hour. So <laughs> what's your pleasure, Rob? Where do you want to start here? You want to talk about the Kelpian universe to begin? Yeah, I'd like to talk about the Kelpian universe because I'm really not sure exactly what's going on here. Uh, well, it seems like I had always been led to believe from season one, and this is something that I am not, I'm not sure this didn't feel consistent to me with all of the other things we know about the Kelpians. Um, basically what we knew about them was that they were prey. They had been hunted by this other species. It's sort of this um, symbiotic relationship between these two species and that they had this highly sent this highly evolved threat level ganglia thing going on and that they were very delicious, which we learned when Michael Burnham ate one. Mm -hmm. And it, it always struck me that based on everything we know about Saru and everything he said about home, that they were just a people that lived in constant fear of these other Baul people yes. that would come down and eat them. Yes. But that's not what we were given in this episode. Right. And, and, and they have very well honed threat ganglia, which have evolved to tell them when they're in danger. Yeah, but they're never in danger because they've evolved into this suicide cult. <laughs> right they basically they just wait around and like every however long i don't know if it's every night or every week or every month 
Like some of them just decide, okay, I'm ready to go. And they all just sit in a circle and Saru's dad, the priest, guides them into the afterlife. Mm hmm. Yeah. So my question is, like, this is wildly inconsistent with what we knew of the Kelpians before this. Is it not? Uh, I agree. I mean, I did not do a deep dive into the uh, Kelpian backstory, but as I understood it, you know, I, I did not think that that Saru was the only person from his planet that knew about any sort of interstellar world. I thought that the Kelpians were part of the Federation. Yeah, it seems like you can't get up to as high as first officer on a starship if you're the only one of your kind that even knows what starships freaking are. Right. You would think that, I mean, how did Saru get so up to speed on everything going on in, you know, I mean, how many years ago was this that he uh, like had a, like how I have no idea how old Kelpians are. So he might be seven years old at the time of this episode. <laughs> and but seems like that he would really have a, a steep learning curve to, you know, get up to snuff with everybody else that's in the Federation and in Starfleet and like grew up like in civilization uh, prior to that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he would have to, like the astrophysics lessons alone. And I've heard that Starfleet Academy is very rigorous and there are some very high level things you have to learn. And if you've spent your entire life harvesting seaweed and living in a hut with no electricity, mm -hmm. I don't see how you ever get to the point where you can be a valuable addition to the crew. Like yeah. the guy we saw tonight in this Short Treks episode is not the guy we see being a valuable attache to the captain of the Discovery. How much time do you think has passed between the events of this Saru backstory and where we are now? I think it can't be more than a few years. Mm hmm. Yeah. But now, it's really it's hard to determine. Yeah, I mean, we have a Lieutenant Giorgio and not a Captain Giorgio, but, you know, uh, it wasn't exactly like uh, Michelle Yeoh was unrecognizable. Yeah, no, they didn't get a like second actress to play her. It's still obviously her. Am I pronouncing her last name right? Yeah, uh, close enough. Yeah. Because she is like the, uh, the, the 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 like biggest star in the CBS All Access Star Trek franchise at this point. She's getting a spinoff. This is exciting <laughs> news. What? And you couldn't even remember her name at the beginning of the last season half. Uh, I, I was blown away by this news. Also, I, I it's great. I I be good for her. I like the actress. I have enjoyed her and everything I've seen her in, but. She's it fine. does seem a little it seems a little out of left field when like CBS All Access, by all accounts, is struggling to get people to watch disco. Right. I mean, we have a Picard spinoff coming up and then uh, we have a uh, another Star Trek. Spin I mean, how many Star Trek spinoffs are going to be on CBS All Access? It's CBS All Access is going to rebrand itself as Star Trek All Access. Right. I, I think there's like an animated Star Trek series that's coming. Hey, I'm here for the animated series because original animated series is my jam, but it it seems like let's get people watching Discovery first, which they're kind of having trouble doing. 
as far as I know. Mm -hmm. I, I had been I understood that they got the second season, but that it was not a sure thing by any means. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, they're going all in on all the Star Trek uh, series on CBS All Access, not to go down too much of a uh, tangent here. Yeah, it's like they it's like they dropped communications devices on every planet and everybody <laughs> picked them up. They're picking up series like Kelpians. Yes, uh, I guess they're going for, you know, the uh, Netflix model of let's just make a million shows. Yeah, I mean, throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. but. <laughs> Anyway, back to back to the universe of the Kelpian planet. The one thing I wasn't clear on, let's talk about this piece of this piece of junk that falls off <laughs> the Baul ship and Saru rescues it. And his dad says, you got to go throw that away. And then yeah. his dad never checks. Mm -hmm. So Saru now has this piece of space junk that he is tinkering with. And it looks like someone has slipped instructions in there. Mm -hmm. So did they intentionally drop this piece of equipment on the planet in hopes that somebody would pick it up and put it together and use it to contact someone? Why? Why would they want that? I mean, it seems like that they, the greatest trick the Baul ever pulled is uh, making them believe that they were being part of some like great sacrifice. Why would they want to disrupt this operation? They're lonely. They want a pen pal. They want to eat the the Kelpians, right? They want to understand their food. And this also raises the question of the ethics of vegetarianism and like the ethics of eating a sentient species mm -hmm. more to the point. Um, there are animals. I, I'm not a vegetarian by any stretch, but there are animals I don't eat because they're too smart. Hmm. And yeah. if maybe it's a test, maybe it's like someone's trying out this veganism thing and they're like, well, if these guys are smart enough to put together a two-way radio, maybe I'll stop eating them forever. <laughs> Wait, so are you saying that the species that are eating the Kelpians are unethical? Well, maybe they don't know. Hmm. Like, I think they know. I think, <laughs> I think that they're in on the scam here. <laughs> so you think they perpetrated this religion that the Kelpians follow? Yeah, I do think that because I mean that, that how is there some sort of like a lottery of who get who's getting selected? Like there's some sort of like a sacrifice where, you know, if uh, they weren't in on it, like they just come down with a net and catch all of them. Right. Well, yeah, but maybe it's just like, like you know, oh, <laughs> Well, I guess in what universe does your prey ever get easier to catch? Mm, you know, there's like no scenario where you have like a tank full of lobsters and, you know, every, uh, you know, weekend, uh, two of them are like, we volunteer as tribute. <laughs> I, would, I would personally be very suspicious of that. It's like, <laughs> oh, you're volunteering? Well, what's wrong with you? Um, why? Why are you coming and why are you going willingly? Um, is this a trap? Are you going to try to kill me? Are you going to eat me? Are you poisoned? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we don't know. We don't know exactly what's going on with the uh, with the Kelpian society. Yeah, but it just seems really convenient. The harvest. That some that some Baul person dropped their make your own subspace communicator kit Mm -hmm. out of the back of their spaceship when they went to pick up their drive through Yeah. Well, somebody did. And I, I think we're not supposed to think about it that much. I Well, we do a podcast. Thinking about it that much is what we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
Uh, I, okay, so all right, so let that we've talked about it from the Kelpian perspective, but from the Starfleet perspective, uh, I, I mean, uh, this seems really unprecedented uh, for Georgia just to drop in because this guy sent a message. Well, it seemed like at the time she picked him up, they'd been communicating. I don't know if they could only communicate in five letters at a time, but it seemed like they'd been writing back and forth quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so when she sends him today, it's like they've been they've been leading up to the Tinder date, like they've been texting quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You would think that uh, Saru's whole mind would be blown. Like it's not just enough that you know that there are people out there. Like if you were like uh you know, and it seems like our society seems like that we are a li- little bit more technologically savvy than what's going on on the Kelpian homeworld. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. And in fact, one thing I thought was that really stuck out as as weird to me was Lieutenant Giorgio says to him. Well, you know, we don't get a lot of communication from pre-warp societies. And it's like, mm-hmm. yo, we live on a pre-warp society. We send that kind of stuff out all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think that the two types of societies are living in huts with no electricity and having warp technology. I feel like there's a big gulf in there. Yeah. Uh, like the Gulf of Mexico, where they catch giant Kelpians, right? Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> just full of delicious shrimp people. (laughs) But just like hypothetically, like let's say you found the beacon and you started sending messages and then the aliens came and they said, Jess, we're so happy you found us. We're taking you away. And do you think that you could maybe like within five years have a position in the alien Starfleet? Well, first of all, I don't think... I had barely put together Ikea furniture, so I don't think you should trust me to turn your space junk into a beacon. Yeah. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, what do they have to offer me? I feel like there's a better value proposition for Saru because it's like, hey, come with me and nobody's going to eat you. Mm-hmm. So I don't belong to a weird spacey suicide cult where I have to go and like put on my Nikes and eat my tainted applesauce and go up to be with the Baul. Like that's not something that's looming ahead in my future. Yeah. If the aliens come, I'm like, no, nah, I got a family. I got a life. Um, I got a podcast. What do you mm-hmm. have to offer me? Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying you would not go. I'm saying I would not go unless I had a really, really compelling reason, something down here to get away from. Or if, like, I was terminally ill and they could cure me or something. But I think Saru's position is a little bit different because he can also, everybody can spin it like, oh, yeah, he just got eaten because that Mm -hmm. happens to their people all the time. It's not weird if somebody mysteriously disappears. And he also has nothing to look forward to except getting eaten. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't seem to view it as enlightenment like everybody else does. Yeah. What was so special about Saru that they brought out uh, Giorgio's ship to go and find him? I mean, this seems like a huge uh, uh, use of resources to go and find Saru. Well, this comes back to what we were talking about earlier with the they're dropping this kit with instructions and seeing if somebody is smart enough to piece it together. I think Saru might be the only person on the planet. I think the implication is he's the only person on that planet who's got the tech savvy 
enough to piece it together. And he's got some kind of like natural untapped mechanical genius that mm-hmm. they want to put to work for them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's almost like the other thing is if you accidentally drop a subspace communicator on a pre-warp society and they are out there contacting people and getting notes about who's up there in the stars, you've already violated the prime directive. You goofed. By talking back to him. Like she shouldn't have mm-hmm. ever answered that call because the second she answered that call, she really was messing with the prime directive. So at this point, she has to take him away or he's going to start talking. Yeah. You know what I think kind of screwed this up for me was uh, in the mirror universe, it seemed like that the, there were many Kelpians around, right? Like the the, the Kelpians were, were talked about as uh, being a delicacy and then also being people that you were the things that they had uh, were they enslaved also on the ships uh, where Michael Burnham was like going to get a massage from a Kelpian. Like, I feel like that the Kelpians were around more in the mirror universe. Yeah, well, I think the difference is um, I think we're meant to believe that in the mirror universe, Saru also picked up that call and like put together the communicator and sent a beacon out. And he heard back from Emperor Giorgio was (laughs) like, oh, wow, you're sentient and obedient and delicious. Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. why don't you meet me up at the top of this hill and bring 50 of your friends? (laughs) So Saru was responsible for the genocide of his people. Yes. In the mirror universe. Like that, his Bandersnatch path led him to turn his people into food for the whole universe instead of food for these one people. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So that's, that's basically it. Um, Yeah. I don't know that there's much more we have to delve into here. I think there's a lot of interesting prime directive stuff. Um, If Reddit is to be believed, you could talk about the prime directive for six hours Mm -hmm. around whether it was okay for her to take him or not. But I think it all boils down to in this universe, it was Giorgio's duty to get this guy out of there before he starts messing with his entire civilization. Okay. Jess, do you think that we will ever see Saru return to his home planet? Is this setting up something where uh, later on in Disco, will we see Saru return home? I think I have heard that there is something. This is of all of the episodes we saw in the Short Treks universe. This is the one that is most likely to come up again in season two. I've heard there's something around the Kelpians. I do not know if it's really they're going back to his planet or what, but maybe they're maybe they discovered warp technology in a big hurry. Mm, Maybe. Maybe he comes back and they've. Yeah, the Kelpians strike back and they're like at war with the Ba'ul. And I I don't know. Anything is possible. This is a deeply weird wrinkle in the whole story of Saru and his people. So. I think that about closes the book on that. We did get a little great feedback from a few people that had these kind of ethical questions. And um, our very own David Bloomberg was a little irritated at first because of the whole premise of the Kelpian people being prey. But then he backpedaled on that a couple of days after he saw it. And he said to me that he recalls Saru saying one throwaway line about how some of their people are raised like cattle. I don't know that that makes it okay, but it's... At least there's a little universe precedent for it. I just wanted to throw that out there. Okay. Thank you, David. Yes. Thank you, David. But now I think we got to move on to what I think was 
I don't know that I liked it better than the mm-hmm. than the brightest star, but I think certainly the most objectively entertaining of this batch of short tracks. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm very excited to talk about uh, The Escape Artist. The Escape Artist. Um, is it the return of Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd? Mm-hmm. And I thought this was... There was so much in here that was nods to other things like in and out of the Star Trek universe, Rob. Um, I really I'm really curious to hear what you thought of this on the whole. Uh, overall, I, I did. I really liked this. I thought it was uh, very fun. I mean, I did think that some of the flashbacks to other things, I thought that sort of uh, played out a little too long and didn't really have a payoff. Unless that, oh, but now that I'm saying it out loud, were those not necessarily flashbacks to other things that Harry Mudd has been through, but were those other things that were simultaneously happening to the different Harry Mudds? Right. I think you are meant to believe as you're watching it that these are like different And I like flashbacks. it even more. Yeah. That's, I think that's kind of the whole point of the story is that you think you're watching flashbacks to like things he's been through and like he's managed to talk himself out of it all these different ways with all these different people. And then it turns out that these things are all happening relatively simultaneously, if not absolutely simultaneously, because then we get the great reveal that none of these Harry Muds are actually the real Harry Mud. They've just robots that have been captured mm-hmm. and they're programmed to beg for their lives just enough to get them captured by Starfleet. And Harry Mud is sitting back, building androids and collecting bounties left and right. Yes. Now, somehow in this timeline, Harry Mudd has eclipsed uh, Dr. Noonien Soong as the greatest robot creator in all of Star Trek history. Well, it's interesting you say that, Rob, because we can we can do a little deeper dive into this because there was some discussion on Reddit about this where people point out that the Soong variety androids had a fully functional positronic brain such that they could pass the Turing test. And I think that was kind of the differentiation between a real Android. I mean, I'm out of my depth here. I need Christian Hubicki to come in and weigh in on this. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the the premise is that data is still far advanced beyond anything else we've seen, because guess what, Rob? This is not the last time Harry Mudd tangles with androids. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? What else will happen to him? That uh... um, Well, eventually he winds up, uh, as you'll recall, the first time that anybody saw Harry Mudd on a TV show in the Star Trek universe was in the mm. original series. And he had two episodes that apparently we keep calling back to. And in his first appearance is an episode called Mudd's Women. Mm-hmm. And it seriously. This is an interesting character who's a lot of fun to watch, and I still hate him. For many reasons. Yeah. But I can't I can't go far enough to call him like a lovable raconteur that we we always want to watch him get out of scrapes and we hope he makes it. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. I want him to be punished and captured because he's a terrible person. But Mm -hmm. his first foray into this into the Star Trek universe, the first time we see him, the Enterprise encounters him on a planet full of androids. Yes. And he is ruling this planet with these thousands of androids that he is maintaining. I don't know if he built them all himself. I can't recall that. It's been a while since I've seen the episode. And 
he basically rules over this planet and he the androids want more humans and so he's brought them the enterprise but that's actually the second he's in a an earlier episode this is the, the planet follow-up. of lady robots it's a lot of lady robots there are some man robots too mhm and i don't think he built them i think he lands on the planet that's right yeah. and this is his he escapes after starfleet captures him the first time in his first appearance and then he lands on the robot planet and befriends the robots becomes their king but the thing that really this is like the kind of guy harry mud is he has them build a robot in the image of his wife so that he can turn her off when he gets tired of listening to her talk yes 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 it's all it's uh coming back to me yeah so that's yeah that's harry mud it's i think this might this short trek might start to explain a little bit of how he was able to move in and take over a planet of androids he has some knowledge. He has clearly has some technical acumen, but his whole MO on that planet was kind of reprehensible. And, you know, if this is a, this is a guy that penetrates a space whale, you know, he was doing inappropriate <laughs> things to the androids too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I did think this was very fun though, Jess. It was fun. It was because you thought you knew where it was going. And then there are a couple of twists that happen in brief succession. You kind of get that the Harry muds they're capturing are not real Harry, but the John Malkovich reveal of all of them in the closet together, repeating the same line over and over, I thought was great. Mm-hmm. And, and then you move one step further and you see that one of the bounty hunters that you, that you see in the first scene selling him to, Another bounty hunter is like in this lab full of full of Harry Mud robots. And then mm-hmm. he re- takes off the mask to reveal it's him in like badass Klingon warrior drag. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was also a great reveal, even if it wasn't necessarily the most shocking twist ever. I thought that was just a funny capper on that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, he If he had any money, he'd be sipping jippers on a beach somewhere. Yeah. And I. The the capper on that is that he's sitting in this starship sipping jippers and the whole thing about jippers. I thought it was funny when the all of the robots started repeating the same phrase. It's like when you go into a shop and you and they have the toys that all speak like the Tickle Me Elmos or whatever. Have you ever done this where you run past all the Tickle Me Elmos and you press them all and then walk away? Um, I don't believe I have done that. I thought this was a thing that everybody did. Apparently it's just something we do, but (laughs) yeah, Uh, I think I saw something like that happen with a bunch of uh, Buzz Lightyear dolls at one point. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the same thing. And so that was, that was entertaining. And then when he pulls back and he's like, I'm sipping a jipper right now, I thought that was kind of a weird way to hang a lampshade on it. But then it's also like, Oh, he does have a lot of money and he is sipping jippers, just not on a beach. So mm-hmm. I, I liked it again. Is Jippers a callback to something? Is this a new thing or is this a hipster drink that I'm not aware of? Allegedly a new thing. Okay. I, which is why I think it was irritating. Like if he just said I'd be sipping margaritas on a beach and it pulls back to him sipping a margarita. I think that would be a little bit less jarring. But apparently it's just a made up name for a drink. And I saw an interview with Rain Wilson where he gives a recipe for it and it involves like blood and eyeballs, of course, but <laughs> I, a jipper is not a real drink. No. 
Rain Wilson really is throwing himself into the Harry Mudd character. Do you think that this uh, speaks to that Harry Mudd will be back in season two of Star Trek Disco? I can't see a universe in which he does not show up. Either if it's not him, it's going to be one of his Android clones. He's like um, the Q of Star Trek Discovery. Maybe so. Um, and I, I'm here for it. I don't, I don't hate it because I enjoy Rain Wilson's portrayal of the character. Um, and I think it really speaks to his love for the franchise because he not only starred in this short track, he directed it. Mm -hmm. And I think he wants to stick around as a director and with him being on set all the time, I can't imagine they're not going to use an actor that talented. Yeah. I thought that the funniest line in this one was when he's uh, chained up with the uh, Orion people and uh, he's talking to the guy and then uh, the Orion woman comes in and she's like, hey, imbecile, we have a camera in here. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's been a long time since I heard anybody who called an imbecile uh, really uh, made me laugh out loud. Yeah, well, and also it's one of those things where when people watched the original 60s series for the first time, there was a lot of technology that us watching it now in 2019, we can look back on that and be like, we have stuff that's more advanced than that now. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, every place is going to have security cameras, and it's probably not something they really thought of in 1967. Mm -hmm. And so to have that like then pan out and the security camera looks exactly like one that would be anywhere here now. Mm -hmm. I thought that was extra hilarious too. Yeah. So I also liked the, uh, the Tellarite. I feel like that it, we've talked about the Klingons and what they look like, but I feel like that they did a good job with uh, making the Tellarites uh, look good on Star, Star Trek Discovery. And this is the first time we've seen a Tellarite in a really long time too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, it was good. And they, I enjoyed the conversation that he was having with the Tellarite where he was pretending to be part of the rebellion and like downplaying, like talking crap about the Federation because you could see that this Tellarite, like Tellarites are one of the founding members of the Federation. I, as I recall, I mean, mm -hmm. somebody, somebody will at me on that if I'm wrong, but this guy's clearly not in the Federation. He's not in Starfleet. He's not necessarily a pro Federation guy. So that's the button you'd push, I guess. Jess, do you have any use for a cudgel? Um, it's apparently a great weapon to have around um, for close combat. Rob, did you know what a cudgel was before he explained it? <laughs> I did not. I, th I thought it was a kitchen appliance. <laughs> no, because I, I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, cudgel's a real thing? Cudgel's a real thing. It's in, it's in like Grimm's fairy tales, I think. I thought it was like jippers. No, cudgel is not like jippers. Cudgel <laughs> you can play in Scrabble. Wow, boy, it's so confusing with uh, what's real, what's fake. I don't know. I don't know anything. Yeah, well, it's a seamless universe. I mean, I kelp is a real thing and there's yeah, like okay. a whole people named after it, too. Yeah. OK, so like Negan's bat is a cudgel. Yeah, I would. Lucille I would term, is a cudgel. Yeah, I would term Lucille a cudgel. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Just I feel like I'm going to get shamed for my lack of original Harry Mudd knowledge. I 
I had to go and read up on him. So I yeah. wouldn't feel bad about this. It's kind um, of a blind spot for me. I feel like that the original mud episodes, like I never was like, oh, I re- you don't want to make sure I, w- I see that or or watch it again. I know it's been sort of uh, really amped up because of Star Trek Discovery, but I, I was never a big Harry Mud guy before this. Well, there's a lot of stuff in this universe that is being called back in weird and new ways. Like I stopped watching enterprise after the first season and Mm -hmm. they keep calling back to that. And I keep feeling stupid that I can't remember it. Um, So I feel like I'm going to have to now go back and watch enterprise, which I don't really want to do. I wonder if there's a lot of crossover between uh, the uh, cast and crew or the writers between people that worked on enterprise and people that are working on this, because they, they do seem to give it more significance than maybe the average star Trek fan might. Well, I think they're probably you don't get hired onto this set if you don't at least love it. Mm -hmm. And I think they would be very tuned into wanting to be able to call back to those universes in weird ways whenever possible. So they're also thinking this is almost contemporaneous with that. So obviously this is going to be the one we're going to lean back on a lot. And we're going to start to see in the new season, we're going to be bringing in Spock and Pike and a lot of people from the original series. So hopefully we'll go back in that direction where I know a little bit more about what's going on. Okay. Jess, are you amped up for season two of disco? I cannot wait for season two of disco. This is really, these short treks have really whetted my appetite. And, you know, after the first couple, I was like, yeah, this feels like a low budget web series, but I think I'm fully back on board. I I don't think I would want to have a beer with Harry Mudd, but (laughs) I can see what his utility. Jippers? Um, I heard they're made of eyeballs, so I want no part of the jippers, <laughs> but they are garnished with a star fruit, apparently. Okay. Uh, are you ready for our recaps to come back? I am definitely ready for our recaps to come back. Um, I got my CBS All Access fired up. I'm just waiting for them to drop. Mm-hmm. The first episode of season two is going to be dropping this Thursday, and... Rob and I will get together sometime over the weekend and we'll have that in your feed early next week. Um, personally, I can't wait. I think there's a lot of anticipation around this and I want season two to be as full of bonkers twists as season one was. Do we know exactly what they're doing in terms of are we seeing like uh, uh, eight or nine episodes and then a break again? Um, well, they didn't do it quite the same way if they were planning on doing that they should have dropped the first episode in the fall like they did with season one so i'm honestly not sure um i think there are fewer episodes this season so Mm -hmm. that may have something to do with it but we'll find out um we'll find out for you after episode one airs and we can drop that into our next podcast all right looking forward to it yes so you can Follow everything that we're doing out in the post-show recaps world. We are covering many, many great shows. Right now is a little bit of a lull in the podcasting schedule, but there's some very fun supplementary content up there. I know that Rob and Josh are still in the middle of their Game of Thrones rewatch, and that is dropping into your feeds. And lots more to come this January and February. Walking Dead's coming back sooner than we'd like, and (laughs) we'll have that for you as well. (laughs) When is it coming back? The week after the Super Bowl? Yeah, I think so. Um, and actually, I think it might be a little bit deeper into February. Okay. Now I can't remember if that's if I'm thinking of that premiere date or the Survivor premiere date. So <laughs> yeah, all right. we'll have all of that Coming for you in, in February. Future. 
You know Coming where to find in February. it. Yes, exactly. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Haymaker Hattie and Rob is at Rob Sesternino. Post Show Recaps is at Post Show Recaps. We are looking forward to having you at us with all of the things we got wrong this episode and all of your feedback. So we'll see you for episode one. I am at Pineapple Boy 27 if anybody needs to add us of about course. any of the things we got wrong. <laughs> <laughs>